So good morning, Carlton. Good morning, Selena. We are coming to the end of what has been a really important and um, significant project, I think, for all of us to undertake. And that project has been around the well-being, mental health and well-being of global majority clergy in the Church of England. And um, this today is just an opportunity to have a conversation about the findings of our research. So for a bit of context, the church has recognised clergy well-being as something of great concern and great significance in terms of providing support to people within the church um, over the years ahead. And this particular project emerges out of um, the national ministry team's uh, living ministry project which was launched in 2016 and that's intended to explore how clergy are experiencing life and ministry across a 10-year period. That particular project, um, it's mixed methods, it uses both qualitative and quantitative methods, um, surveys and interviews to explore the experiences of clergy and how we got involved in this project was there was a particular recognition that global majority um, clergy face particular challenges within the church. And so our, our role was really to explore what those specific challenges are, to look at the state of, of well-being for global majority clergy, um, to explore the extent to which racial, ethnic and cultural differences impact upon clergy well-being, and to understand a bit more about what resources clergy draw on in terms of enabling their own flourishing within the church and also what the church might want to do in terms of best practice to safeguard um, global majority clergy. So I know many people will know you who are likely to listen to this, but I would love to get some introductions uh, to both of you nonetheless. Um, so we'll start with you, Selena. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew you to this particular research project. I am Selena Stone and I am currently, I've just started as a postdoctoral research associate at Durham University. Um, but many of you who are listening will know me because I have for the last five years have been a lecturer and tutor at St. Malaitis College. And this has really been a great setting to work in and has really brought me face to face with some of the big questions around ministry and well-being and having many friends in the church who are clergy and seeing up close what their lives can be like um, and wanting to do have the opportunity to really look into that a little bit more and I think with also the broader conversations about well-being happening publicly and in society as a whole it was really was a great opportunity to actually contextualize that work thinking about clergy who we know are so often suffering from burnout dealing with overwork and so it was really just a great opportunity to really bring some of these stories to the fore and to research what we, um, and when I say we, I'm thinking about me and, and people who I know, what we knew anecdotally about what was happening in clergy lives. So it was really a great opportunity to contribute something meaningful to this particular conversation. Amazing. Thanks, Selena. And what about you, Colton? Um, how did you, did, did Selena rope you in? Tell us about your trajectory into the project and who you are. Yeah, Selena did rope me in uh, into this and I'm, I'm glad she did. But I've, I've heard of the Well Living, the Living Ministry Project for some time and I was always interested in it. Um, so when this, this time came to, to, to research I guess global majority heritage experiences. I was delighted. 
But for me, I am an Anglican priest and a contextual theologian working at the Queen's Foundation in Birmingham. And I've always been interested in, in these kinds of issues as relates to my research, but also my own personhood as someone trained and ordained in the Caribbean. And then having what it's about um, been in ministry here in the UK since 2010. So quite quite a quite a long time. So I have multiple experiences. So it's fascinating to see these things impact, yeah, having impact on me personally, but on the lives of people I know. Um, and this is an important piece of research. Yeah, absolutely. And in a, in a way, um, Carlton, you're you're pointing there to the fact that, in a way, you're the the most insider, the closest to the church as an Anglican ordained uh, member of this team. Um, so um, it's really it's been really great to learn from both of you, to be honest. Um, just to introduce myself briefly, I'm, I suppose I'm I suppose I'm the most outsider <laughs> of the research <laughs> team, but um, I was also really really pleased to um, have the opportunity to to work on this project and to to have Selena didn't have to rope me in um, we became fast friends when we met at a conference with our, our shared interest in exploring faith and race um, my particular um, PhD work at the moment at the University of Leeds looks at um, dynamics of race religion and faith and spirituality with an organizational life and that's both in secular settings and in faith-based settings um, and alongside that since joining the project team I am also now a research fellow leading on all the qualitative research for an organization called Black Thrive Global and our work is in particular exploring um, health inequalities and mental health and well-being for black and African descended groups so um, this this project has been really close to some of the work we're doing there and I'm sure will be of interest to people well beyond the church as well um, it's really important work can I can I okay. just say yeah. something about that you're necessarily as much as an outside as possible just to have a, a a stronger approach to this kind of research so yeah welcome well that's very generous of you Carlton <laughs> Thank you. It's been it's no, it's been really great um, working on it. And I've I've learned a lot, but also many of the experiences that global majority clergy in the Church of England face are faced across all kinds of context. And that's been some of the most fascinating learnings. But we will come to that. when We talk to the talk to the findings a bit more. Um, let's let's go into a little bit more about the context for um, this particular project. Um, Selena, this one is probably a good question for you, but what's meant by well-being in the Church of England in the first place um, when living ministry talk about this issue? And, and how did you approach discussions of well-being with research participants on that basis? So what was really helpful for us is that the project that we have done sits alongside the broader living ministry study. So they have a living ministry well-being map, which we kind of used as a, as a launch point really to talk about well-being and well-being is understood to have a few different elements within this map this model relational elements spiritual and vocational mental and physical financial and material and participation so these are kind of five core aspects of well-being which we asked our participants about um, to basically explore with us and explain to us 
how they would describe their well-being currently, but also historically, if they were people who'd been in ministry for a while, um, and what impact being ordained in the Church of England had on their well-being. So we asked them to talk to all these different aspects of their experience. And what, what one of the interesting findings was that towards the beginning of the conversations with everybody was I asked them to reflect a little bit on whether for them as global majority clergy, those aspects of well-being still resonated. And many of them came back and spoke about the importance to name culture and ethnicity and expression and authenticity as part of well-being. Uh, and so it was interesting to us that even though participation, for example, is spoken of as core to well-being for clergy, when it came to global majority clergy, participation often was one of the elements, one of the aspects which caused them to have harm done to them. It was taking part in some structural, in organizations, in committees, in particular activities that exposed them more to harm in some, in some contexts. And so what was interesting for us is realizing that for global majority clergy, e even the wellbeing map itself needs to be explored a little bit. And the kind of color blindness of that wellbeing map actually means that we don't always catch all the nuances of what well-being really means for global majority people. So it's not just participation, but it's authentic participation that matters for clergy. Um, and, and, and that needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah, really interesting. There's just a couple of things I'd, I'd like to understand a little bit more. Um, so when you, so it sounds like what you're saying is the well-being map at the moment, and based on our conversations throughout this research project, it doesn't mention race at all. And so this project, as I understand it, is the is the first time a discussion about that needing to be explicitly reflected comes up. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And I think it, it, when you look at the kind of wider living ministry study, a couple of people do mention that kind of race might impact upon well-being, similarly to gender or socioeconomic background. Um, but this was the first opportunity to really talk to clergy of global majority heritage and get to the details of what exactly that looks like in their day-to-day -day lives and experience. So that this, I think, has made this project really important um, and a really important part of the broader racial justice conversation. Although this sits within the clergy wellbeing part of the church's work, there are constant and clear overlaps. And as we get into the findings, that I think becomes evident with the broader questions of racial justice, because they are very intertwined. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and the second piece that I wanted to understand a bit more is when you say participation exposes people to harm. Can you say a little bit more about that, maybe whether there were any concrete examples and, and how race features in that, you feel? Sure. So, I mean, several participants spoke about how there's a, there's a sense that on the one hand, there is an openness to their participation in the broader life of the church or beyond their parish but that the kind of emotional, mental and psychological costs of doing that can actually negatively impact well-being. So while on the one hand, it might seem like a positive thing to say, yes, participation is a really good sign that people are well within the church. Because of the often internal costs, the unseen costs of taking part in wider groups, and, and this can be in the sense of clergy from global majority heritage, feeling like they've been made to feel like they don't belong 
mm-hmm. um, not being welcomed in relationships sometimes with their clergy peers, not all the time, but this did come up a few times. Um, an uncertainty about whether they are being welcomed as their whole selves to participate in particular groups or whether they've been asked to come in particularly to talk about racial justice when that might not be their core interest. They might have skills in a whole range of other areas as theologians, as academics, as community organizers, but the one thing they can be asked about all the time is race. It means participation becomes quite burdensome because they're not actually always allowed to participate in the way they feel called to participate. Um, and, it, and, it, and it's assumed, their participation is assumed to relate to the matters of racial justice or constantly, and this can be a real struggle for, for some people. Yeah, absolutely. So that really reflects something that was written about in the report about the quality of participation, participation in and of itself not being the sign that we have got where we need to in the church in terms of racial justice but actually what is people's qualitative experience if I'm only ever seen as global majority and expected to constantly speak to this issue what impact does that really have on me um Carlton is there some you know I'm just curious because I know you um you conducted a number of the interviews is that something that you um came across yourself in any of the people that you spoke to um over the time you did the research yeah, very much so. Um, I think this issue of of participation is something that goes throughout the 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 interviews, and I, I guess for me, it's it's something that that I recognize within my own journey. Um, so it it was interesting hearing it in the voices of others, but also acknowledging it within my my own self. So this is nothing, um, this is something I know at a very deep level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this brings us to a, a broader question on the findings, really, which which we haven't um, gone into it in huge amounts of detail, but there were a huge number of findings that came out of this research project. It was incredibly thorough. I think you if I can say so, I can't speak for participants, but it certainly came across in my analysis of the data and looking at interview transcripts and so on, that you had created spaces where people on the whole, maybe some more than others, felt safe to share these their experiences as global majority people in the church. Um, given how many findings there are, I I know we won't be able to cover them exhaustively. I hope people will read the report for themselves to see them. But Carlton, just going back to what you were saying about how much of this, the findings resonated for you. Are there any particular findings that that you think were important that you would really want people to know um, based on your involvement in this project? I I think one of the things, several, the first one is, I think the the way I would describe it is the superficial embrace of of ethnicity, <laughs> of people's experiences from global heritage, majority heritage, um, um, just ways of life. And it's it's where I can be used as a, a, a black person or an Asian person to make things look more inclusive 
But the truth is I'm not really included. <laughs> um, I think that's that's something that comes up time and time again. Um, and the second thing is just how pervasive the lack of access is. Um, and what I mean by that is in terms of people who were excluded from different positions or jobs or posts or circles. And as far as I'm concerned, one of the, the things that interests me, and it's a, it's, it's a big issue as a theological educator, how many clergy persons would like to advance in areas of education for the sake of the church, but do not have the funding or, or simply have not had the spaces where they were encouraged to. Um, and, and part of that is not seeing themselves reflected as, as, as global majority heritage theological educators, as people who have done PhDs in these areas. Um, Selena and I are few of the very few who are reflected in theological education institutions. And and that's, that's an issue, a big one. And w one of the things I find very, I mean, we, we all had this experience where talking about very gruesome experiences of racial discrimination were unprovoked. And, and that's partly because um, people felt safe with us. But the fact that they felt safe with us is very, very telling that we were the persons doing this research. But unprovoked experiences that they related to us in and often in some good detail um, and across the board tells us that this is quite a normative experience. And yeah. and we cannot we cannot simply um i think there's a reason why the the well-being categories had to be upgraded and updated and really critiqued because when you come in it comes to global majority heritage persons the dynamics change and change significantly yeah absolutely carlton and i mean there's there's a number of things in what you said there but what really stuck with me is this the term you used of superficial embrace um so on the one hand you're pointing to this dynamic again that links to what selena said earlier of participation uh being there but it being kind of superficial and then this experience people are having of discrimination as a normative experience and and hearing this same story over and over again you can't just dismiss as anecdotal right there's there's something about the amount of times that story comes up so selena do you do you have anything that you'd you'd want to add to that and in particular around these experiences of um unprovoked discrimination were there stories that stuck out to you that you heard yeah i mean i think um in terms of key findings i think i would say there were moments of, of real encouragement in the stories in that we heard. And I was always relieved when I had an interview and left thinking and kind of exhaled at relief at the stories of clergy who have had such wonderful experiences in their parishes with communities that embrace them and with bishops who have been really supportive and clergy peers who stood by them in difficult times 
and who gave them really culturally competent support when they experienced racial violence of some kind or you know a personal tragedy or loss and those are stories in which we could see that it can be done like global majority clergy can be treated well they can be supported well they can be they can thrive and flourish in ministry and I think I would want to say that and put that on the record especially for ordinance who might be thinking oh my god <laughs> you know um why on earth am I thinking of doing this um, and that was really I think that's an important thing to say is that there are spaces where you can thrive and spaces where you can flourish and so the, the task is to discern where those places are um, and I guess our task is also to name where that's not happening and to help to highlight what needs to be done to make spaces where you know an ordinance who's global majority heritage a priest should be able to go anywhere and thrive they shouldn't have to like locate particular places where they think they're going to be safe they should be able to train with any training incumbents they should be able to be in any diocese in any area and know that they are welcome, they belong, and they can trust the people they're working with to care for them on a pastoral level holistically. And this, this is what I think is, is, is what's driving my analysis and my writing of the report was a conviction that anybody from any ethnic background should be able to go anywhere in the church to serve and anywhere in the country and know that they're gonna be cared for and that their flourishing is possible. And um, so I think for me, one of the, the key findings really was, I think how much of the support for global majority clergy well-being comes from other global majority clergy. This for me, I think was the most, I would not want to say unbelievable, but, but shocking thing because um, time and time again, people said, that the support what enabled them to thrive or what enabled them what enabled them to deal with difficulties in their ministry was talking to other global majority clergy who could understand or empathize with their situation who they felt they could trust who were willing to do what was necessary to care for and sometimes protect them in other times advocate for them but what was and this was a, was reflected really positively by lots of people but when speaking to the people who actually do this work, it was clear that for many of them, this is done as an additional, often unseen labor on top of their existing jobs. So they might just be a kind of parish priest or working in theological education or have an administrative role in the church, which is their, their formally paid role. And then in addition to that, they're doing a whole other practically part-time or full-time job in terms of supporting their peers who are global majority heritage to just survive um, their journey of ministry in the church. And this obviously has huge implications for those clergy members who are doing this additional work because their own well-being is then put under strain because of the additional work of, of supporting their peers. And although they spoke about this as a privilege of something that they wanted to do to help those who were coming behind them, those who were alongside them in ministry, it was really concerning to me the levels of additional work that are being done by clergy from global majority backgrounds just so that they can survive in ministry and help their peers to survive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so there's 
there's two points there really one is this additional labor but the other thing is you're saying that that additional labor is what allows people to thrive and it it sounds like it, it potentially enhances people's well-being when they're in the church to have those connections with other global majority people have I understood that correctly definitely definitely okay and were there other things um in terms of supporting uh global majority clergy's well-being were there other things that you picked up as being significant um during the course of the research yes i think it's probably also worth mentioning i mean in the relationships category of well-being that is relationships across the board personal relationships as well as those within the church and it was really clear that family and friends of global majority clergy also end up sharing a lot of this additional labor in terms of supporting their clergy relative or friends being a listening ear sometimes offering what sounded like almost therapeutic services in terms of he listening them listening to them recount stories of ministry when it's going well but also when it might be going badly when they're experiencing racial abuse in their in their context when they when they feel like they're experiencing discrimination when there's been kind of blatant occurrences of discrimination and family carry lots of this. And I think there was a concern from some people who took part in the research of what this was actually showing to their family and friends about the nature of the church, that they were, that it was kind of tarnishing the witness of the church, that actually their family and friends were saying, actually, my, my relative is not safe here. I never forget one person talking to me about how much they had thrived in their secular career they were kind of senior leader in their secular career and came into the church. And within a, a handful of years, their confidence was rock bottom. They've experienced so much racial abuse, discrimination. Their leadership was questioned at every turn. And they said their confidence had never been the same since joining the church. And this was somebody who was clearly very competent. They had senior leadership in their secular job. And the, the sad thing was, was clearly the harm that had been done to this person through their, their taking part in their training for the ministry and their involvement in, in ministry in the church. But also that it was they had a worse experience working in the church than in a secular organisation. And it was, I mean, I'll never forget the, the story that I heard and how this person relayed this to me because they, you could see for them, this was the deepest spiritual and theological problem, as well as an emotional and a mental one that caused them to really question the church, the God, their faith. And that question is in doubt God, but just it raised some theological queries for them in terms of how it could be possible that they could be in the church experiencing this. And yet in a different organization where they would have maybe anticipated having a little bit more struggle they were thriving. And so I think even though I know Tamandi said at the beginning that there's parallels between what global majority people experience in the church and outside, sometimes it's even even worse for people to be when they've come into the church. And that I think is, it's, it's shameful to put it as frankly as I can. Yeah it's 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 also incredibly sad. And I'm, you know, very conscious of the the impact it must have had on both of you hearing those stories um, again and again. Um, and obviously for the participants who ex experience that every day uh, or frequently enough, as, as, as Carlton alluded to. Um, 
because it, it, it sort of does take a toll not only on global majority clergy, which includes at least yourself, Carlton, <laughs> but, but those of us hearing these stories and the family members that you allude to who then become the, the support structure um, for, for those people. Um, Carlton, do you have anything that you, you want to add based on what Celine's just shared? Yeah, I I was left with a thought in my mind. You know, you you think you the this story of having a secular job and a very competent person is something that I see often um, and heard in the research. But but there's a sense of which when you join the church or when you join ministry, um, you you really. Uh, necessarily it seems a part of you is not accepted or it's minimized and it just happens to be the fact that you would not socialize in a particular way you don't have that particular language I guess you don't and and you don't look the same or as should be expected and how that translates is um, there is something deeply wrong with me when you know it's not true and and I find that really heartbreaking. Um, yeah. Yes. So it's incredibly heartbreaking. I I, I want to come to, you know, one of the stories that was in, um, in in the report that you you produced, um, and in particular, it's it's one of the most overt. Um, examples of of racism and discrimination that someone encountered, but it was it was the story of a, a a member of the church who was doing some voluntary work and was working with a group of young people and was racially abused by a young girl who was in his care at the time. Um, I wonder if one of you would be willing to speak to that story and, in particular, some of the issues of what you called unprovoked discrimination that people are facing um, when they're going about their work in particular areas? Yes, I mean, I'm happy to. Um, so this this story, and the, the person who shared this story used the phrase racial safeguarding to talk about their experience. And for me, this opens up a whole piece of work to be done around how we think about vulnerability and how notions of race play into vulnerability because this particular story was of a man of global majority heritage an ordained person who was racially abused by a young white woman in their parish and this person described the trauma of that experience the impact that this had on some young black women who were nearby and and, the, and he talked about this and reflected on why we need to think about race as tied into the matters of vulnerability and the need for safeguarding. Because traditionally, when we think about power and clergy, we imagine that the clergy person is the, in the position of power all the time. Um, we imagine that a young woman is the person who's vulnerable, um, and we don't, I think, have enough nuance to understand that in a similar way to the questions of gender, because it's the gender lens that makes us think of it in this way, we see the vulnerability of women and rightly so in relation to men in a leadership context. But what this story raised for 
me and for us, I would say as a group was the ways in which race needs to also be taken into account in conversations about vulnerability. Because for this person, um, the person described to me how this young white woman knew what she was saying as with the racial abuse that she was giving to this person. The fact that he was ordained didn't make any difference to the fact that she thought able to racially abuse a black man. Um, and so the very the, the traditional notions of power that we think protect you from abuse, in this case, his masculinity, his, um, his ordained status, did nothing to protect him from racial abuse. And so it really come, adds some complexity to our notions of vulnerability and power because for this priest, it took him ages. And I would say he probably still hasn't got over what happened. I don't think you ever get over these things. You just learn how to manage the, the, the impact of them. But it made, it made me really wonder when we're thinking about pastoral care within the church, when we're thinking about safeguarding, whether that again is done from a colorblind approach, whereby if a person, like in this case, experiences racial abuse, where do they go to report that? Where do they go for support? Um, this person like has to find therapeutic support which is expensive to process this experience has to process this in spiritual direction and probably doesn't have access to you know a spiritual director who's competent enough to help them like process these race-related issues around their spirituality their theology their emotional well-being their mental well-being and so for many clergy who experience these kinds of things, there is just a lack of, of adequate support for them. And so they are often left alone or talking to other clergy to try to figure out how to cope and deal with these instances, rather than being able to locate the services they need to help them to be well. And so this is why one of our core recommendations has been to both recognize the importance of race in safeguarding and to also ensure that clergy have access, independent, financially supported access to therapeutic support and spiritual direction, including retreats where they can actually go to be healed and to be well, because for some clergy, these kinds of things are happening to them have happened to them or are happening to them frequently. And even if they're infrequently, they can still have impacts on a person for months and years to come. Absolutely. And, and not only months and years to come, you can sort of, I think something interesting that you said is we learn to manage the impact of these incidents. But what struck me um, about that particular case, which has resonated with other researchers done, that's, that I've done, has was the fact that the particular priest involved and I think we should talk about the specifics of what happened in the interaction it was a very short interaction with a young woman in the church would have been over within a few seconds which can help us to think you know these things don't matter it's just part of a casual exchange in conversation but what specifically happened was that the priest was called a monkey by the young woman which Again, the reason I think it's important to say this is sometimes people don't have a clear, if they're not global majority of themselves, they may not realize the way that these kind of colonial stereotypes referring to someone who has black skin as a monkey. This is, we're talking centuries old stereotypes that are still being played out in a casual interaction today. 
and will impact someone for many years to come. And I think there is this narrative that we learn to deal with it. Sometimes the weight of racial trauma builds up over many years and many interactions can result in serious well-being and mental health crises. I don't know that we can say that from the stories we've heard in this research, but certainly in other contexts I've worked, we see that time and time again, that what can look like a small 10 second interaction of racial abuse to be brushed off, these are cumulative for people of global majority um, heritage backgrounds. And, and they do need to be addressed within what you say, this racial safeguarding lens. So, so let's talk about the safeguarding piece of this a bit. Um, I'm a little bit reluctant to ask this question um, because I think it puts the burden on global majority people, but I'm gonna ask it anyway, because at the end of the day, we exist within the church structures and we're navigating them. So Carlton, what do you think in your experience um, global majority clergy can do to safeguard their own well-being, given that this is the reality of the context that some people are operating in? Um, I think, I mean, the first thing I would add, the first way I would answer that is yeah we often we've had to to do it on our own um and and that's that's out of out of the fact that we often exist in our own silos depending on our own cultural resources etc i think global majority heritage persons the 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 um well, personally, I don't think the burden should be on us to have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the first thing. Um, but the, 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 the other issue, as far as I'm concerned, um, is, is our our institutions the church um our leadership structures i i think one of the things the report makes clear is that we need structures that are racially aware um aware of those dynamics that provides the kind of resources that are culturally competent in terms of um, therapeutic support in terms of counselors training incumbents who are aware when you have um, clergy coming into the ministry, bishops and senior leaders who who take this um, extremely seriously, I, I I experience well. I I was doing an interview, and one of the interview participants spoke at length about over the course of their ministry, just how ministry itself put them in very much in 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 poverty so <laughs> in, in poverty but also um without going into much detail they were they were asked to come to the uk ministry was thriving but they were never offered an incumbency they always had to do ministry in terms of on a part-time basis or in a way where they couldn't get a full stipend 
and these were people who had families that depended on them but there was no awareness of the need to treat this person as a clergy like other clergy they were part of a special project and that and the after effect of that was was dire and for maybe perhaps almost 20 years of enduring this so for me just leadership structures that take the real lives global majority heritage persons seriously other than that we end up doing it ourselves by one way or the other and that's just not good enough yeah I think I'd want to add as well to Mando, another really interesting theme that came up quite often was participants speaking about overworking and overperformance, almost a kind of perfectionism to their ministry as a way of attempting to prove themselves to a church, to a community, to a congregation, and to, I guess, also challenge any racist or prejudiced ideas about their wider ethnic group. And this came up so frequently that it was, I think, another one of the really important findings has been when we talk about work-life balance, well-being, all those kinds of important aspects of a person's life. The sense that you know one doesn't belong, or the sense that one's group is seen as being othered, or or isn't treated with respect, or isn't viewed as being equal, often for clergy doesn't doesn't lead them to despair, to pulling back, to withdrawing. It can actually have the opposite effect of stimulating an over performance and a such a, a higher level of work, overworking on sermons, doing above and beyond what would be considered reasonable in terms of pastoral care, in seeking to be even more accepted by a congregation, especially if they're the first person of global majority heritage in that, in that context. And this was across the board for Asian clergy, as well as for people from African and Caribbean backgrounds. You know, it was the same kind of feeling that they needed to do the work of proving that, you know, people like them could do this job too. And it, it, it was interesting to see people processing that as they were telling us those stories and wondering should I be doing this? Is this a good thing? Is this a healthy thing? And that was another occasion where I thought, actually, that's the kind of space where both the space to process this therapeutically would be important, but it also spoke to how do training incumbents, how do bishops, how do senior clergy in the church be attentive to this? Because the levels of overwork, we heard stories of people retiring early, being assigned, being off sick frequently because of overworking. And it would be interesting, we don't have the data on how like, the rates of this among global majority clergy, where those kinds of ethnicity gaps and data will be important to know is the rates at which global majority heritage clergy are being signed off sick, are leaving the ministry prematurely. Mm -hmm. 
because of these levels of overwork. But I think it's important to say that even those clergy who look like they're doing well, even those clergy who look like they're doing well can still be really struggling to thrive um, because overworking is not thriving. Um, but on the surface, it can seem like people are, they're at the meetings and they're taking on this and taking on that, but actually even that can be a sign that they, their well-being is actually at risk. Yeah, absolutely. And this, again, this is not about just participation and going back to where you started, but over-participation as a form of compensation. And um, I think, you know, just to, to go to where you, where you were, Carlton, which you talked about the poverty that somebody encountered having been encouraged to come over and serve um, in this country. And it, it sounds like in everything that you've both said, I'm hearing poverty that is both material and monetary. Um, if you're overworking but being paid the same stipend, then that's not going to be a great calculation if you start to add it up. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of material poverty and probably a spiritual, emotional and psychological poverty that global majority people are, are encountering, it sounds like, in the church. Um, Selena, you haven't had an opportunity to respond to the question on safeguarding. I put uh, that the, what I think Carlton was absolutely right to say it shouldn't be on us <laughs> to have to safeguard ourselves, even though that's how things are happening now. What do you feel um, the church's role should be? Um, and how do you think the church might think about safeguarding um, global majority clergy? And again, you shouldn't be doing this work, but if you have any thoughts, feel, feel free to share them, please. Thanks, Amanda. I mean, I think that we, in if I'm looking at the recommendations now for action and response to this, I think we've, in one of the points is particularly thinking about training incumbents and the, their pastoral role towards curates, for example, which I think was one of the points which I know for all clergy can be a really difficult time and a minefield, but for global majority clergy, um, this came up so frequently as a real point of challenge and of, we heard stories of really wonderful working relationships between curates, global majority curates and incumbents um, who were supportive and who empathise even if they didn't understand what they might be dealing with as global majority clergy training in the Church of England or in communities that were not used to having global majority leaders around. And those are really encouraging stories that showed actually it's entirely possible for training incumbents to be equipped to support curates, similarly bishops to be and senior clergy to be equipped to see race, to see the dynamics of power that can be at play when somebody is from a global majority background in a mainly white church or in a mainly white community. Um, not that it was always in those communities that people had difficulties because people had great experiences there, but there were often, often very subtle experiences of being othered even in places where people had a genuinely positive experience. So I think there's, there's a need to really help training incumbents to recognise what their curate might be experiencing 
in their relationship with the training incumbent or with wider people in the team, in the church, in the community, and ensure that they create an environment where their, their curate can speak to them about what they might be having to deal with in terms of racial abuse and that there's a necessary support for that person that I think is essential. Uh, and I think at, in, in a, at a diocesan level, this needs to be thought about that any priest at any level in the church, in fact, ordinance included, should have an, a very clear avenue for speaking about their experiences of racial abuse that are particular to them. Um, but I think in general, the questions about clergy wellbeing, which will affect all clergy, also need to be thought about more thoroughly and for, for within at every level in the church. Because I think that the, the sustainability of ministry is so important when you think about the calling people feel towards ministry, the training that they go through, sustaining people for ministry, especially for the younger people that are training, um, is, is really important. So getting it right in terms of the avenues for support. And I, I think especially for you, for global majority clergy, that also means independent support. And this is important because people often spoke about the, the kind of the gossipy culture that can occur within the church. People being told things that they don't really know have been shared, sharing things that they don't know have been shared, or being worried about a word getting out about them, or if they seek support, are they gonna be seen as not having resilience? All these kinds of cultural things about how the church can function in certain places can prevent people from seeking support even when they know that they need it. So ensuring that independent support is available is about saying the priority is that global majority clergy have the support that they need and that it's in a space where they don't have to worry about what's going to get back to whoever is their, their bishop or whoever else in the church, where they know that what is shared is going to be confidential. If they have a conversation about their well-being, that it's not going to be weaponized against them. And that needs to be, that needs to be in place for global majority clergy and for clergy across the board. So that I think would be really important, but these cultural changes um, are, are gonna take time, but they need the action needs to be taken as a matter of urgency to ensure that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Carlton, did you, you're, you're nodding and saying, mm, is there anything else you wanted to add to that? No, no, just, just nodding in agreement. Yeah, yeah, I think, really helpful reflections, um, Selena. And I think they are reflections that also point to this, this work really just being scratching the surface. I mean, for us to really understand what would be needed in terms of that independent support and how that fits with the structure, there were a lot of tensions we discovered in this process. You know, for example, we know that people have shared with us that they don't want to be related to as if they are just their race and the costs of being related to in that way is difficult. How then do you support someone in training if they may not want to have that conversation with you and would prefer to have it in an independent place? And I think, you know, this is in the, in the report, you also highlight areas for further research. And, and one of those things really is to understand, you know, whiteness, what it is like to be from a dominant group in the church and how comfortable and competent and equipped you feel to talk about race, your own 
as a white person, um, but also to support um, those people who are in your care effectively and to, to know when to have those conversations and to respect boundaries when not. I think that's the work we're all going to be in in many contexts for uh, a long time to come, I suspect. Um, yeah, so and I think it's worth saying as well that um, that clergy feel very differently about their ethnic identity. And I think this, this is probably something that should be said again very clearly. And I know we've kind of briefly insinuated this, but I think it's important not to make assumptions about how clergy feel about their experiences of ministry and to presume that you know what a person needs because they're global majority and they're ordained. You, we've, we've conducted this research, we've done our analysis of the data that we've managed to gather, thanks to the participants who shared their stories with us. But there are all, also going to be other stories and other perspectives. And so I think it's important that people who are looking to support clergy don't just project and assume that they know how a person wants to identify in terms of whether they want to think a lot about their ethnic identity and race or whether they don't. Many clergy just want to serve as clergy, they feel called to the ministry and they want to serve, they don't want to engage in conversations about racial justice, they don't think of themselves as having additional needs. And so I think that's important, not to use that as a way of silencing those who do want to talk about race and their identity, but just as a way of realizing that if you are a, a person in, in a position of responsibility or you're a peer with a, with a person of global majority heritage, it's simply about allowing them to share for themselves what they need mm -hmm. and believing them, believing the story that they, that they tell you, um, not pressuring people to share about their experiences of well-being if they don't want to. That is not something we'd want to happen on the back of this research, is that you listen to this, this recording or you read the report and then you know start to quiz the global majority clergy person in your area or in your in your deanery to see how they feel about that about the research that is not what the point of this is um that is that is actually the opposite of what we'd want to happen but it's about ensuring as you sit together and i'm speaking particularly to white clergy here and to white senior clergy in particular is to be attentive to taking these stories on board and saying well we have to assume that this is happening in our area. We're not going to verify this and, and go on a kind of check. We're going to assume that this is happening where we are. What now are we going to do in response to this? What are we going to put in place to make sure that global majority clergy are thriving? What are we going to do to make sure that we have a zero tolerance for racial abuse, for racial exclusion, for discriminations? What are we going to do to make sure we stand by our clergy colleagues who are global majority heritage if they experience discrimination, racial abuse? Like we're going to assume that they're going to have to deal with this stuff in their parish. How do we stand by them? That I think is the important way of taking this research on board to make sure that even if you don't have somebody now who's from global majority heritage, you may have them in the future. How do you prepare the ground now to make sure that your your diocese, your area, your deanery is a space in which all clergy can thrive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and can I add something to that? It, it strikes me. The, the other thing is, is particularly white clergy and those in senior leadership uh, and who are power brokers just, just to make space for 
um, for sitting at the table and actually becoming leaders themselves, a global majority heritage persons becoming leaders and taking up senior positions. Because it, one of the things I come across time and time again is that people are saying, look, that, that space is not for me. <laughs> I, I, it's just not for me. I, I'm not... I'm not um, encouraged to be here. I'm not sought to be here. And when I, even if I'm here, what do I say? What do I bring? So how do we change and shift those dynamics? I think that's extremely important uh, as far as I'm concerned. Mm, definitely, definitely. Okay, well, I think we're probably at the point where if there are any final reflections, they'd be really good to hear. and. Um, in particular, I'm also thinking about the significant contribution of the participants as well. Um, I don't know if you have any any particular thoughts on that, but yeah, what what do you want people to to take away from this piece of research, this 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 conversation today, um, and what are your final thoughts on this issue, Selena? Should we? No, we should end with you, Selena. I reckon because <laughs> Carlton, is there anything that you really want to say? Um, yes. I, I think clergy generally, I think this is a sacrificial ministry for anyone who wants to go into it, generally. Um, but global majority heritage clergy sacrifice a whole lot and often a whole lot more to endure in this ministry. And the, the I guess the, the expense of time, energy, um, personal, spiritual, family resources is significant. These are persons like any other persons, but we have to take seriously the, the grace <laughs> with which people exercise this ministry. And in the midst of that, respond appropriately to make sure that they flourish. Um, a number of persons that we um interviewed would have some some of them have crossed waters cultures um countries and continents just to be supporting the ministry of the church that's significant we have a duty of care to take their sacrifices seriously it's it's not a joke yeah absolutely selena I think I'll probably end by speaking a little bit to the way that I think this research really fits in and contributes to the wider conversations on racial justice. And it, it, and in a way, I think I didn't anticipate this link being as strong as it turned out to be as we did the analysis. And I probably should have assumed it, but I wanted to go in with an open mind. And as I said, we've had so many great stories We've heard some good stories as well as really difficult ones of clergy and, and their experiences of ministry in the church. But I think, I think this really speaks to, particularly to those people who maybe are a little bit cynical about the racial justice work, which I think has sometimes been framed purely as a matter of representation and the need to have more people of global majority heritage in particular positions and 
you know, that's one of the key things around the proof that the church is, is moving forward in this regard. But I think what this, what this research project contributes is the real human cost of what racial inequity means in the Church of England, that it's a matter of harm. And we talk a lot about power in race, and that's very important, but the reason why power needs to be named and racial equity needs to be the goal is because of the harm that's done when that is not the case. And what we've heard in these stories and what we've tried to articulate in the report is, is what's possible in a positive sense when there's equity between people of different ethnic groups, but also that what's, what the, what's at risk, the human cost of having a church that is, continues to be racially unjust. And so I think I would say that the well-being work and the work of racial justice works hand in hand. There cannot be justice where there isn't flourishing and well-being. Um, and the racial justice, racial justice goes beyond simply having people participating, as we've said. It, it's about the quality of the participation, the wholeness and the wellness of the people who are present and engaged in serving God and people and ensuring that all of us, particularly those who have power within the church, and I don't just mean positional power, I mean the power of their particular backgrounds, that they take notice of the harm and do what is necessary, even in this small corner that they may have to ensure that they work towards a better future for the church and for all of God's children. Thank you, Selena, and thank you, Carlton. I think that is uh, really a very good point to end um, this sort of conversation with. You make what is important known and very clear there. Um, I just wanted to say thanks to both of you, um, myself, um, for the incredible commitment and conviction that you both brought to undertaking this research I know that you did many 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 hours over what we originally planned and I know that you took huge amounts of effort to try and reflect um, the stories of those people that so generously shared with us so thank you very much and um, I'm pleased that we're finally able to put this report out into the world and um, I look forward to hopefully working with you maybe on something very very joyful next time <laughs> um, but yes thank you so much and um, take care to both of you thank you thank you